This podcast is brought to you by Villanova University on iTunes U. Please visit us on itunes.villanova.edu. This is also a special year because um, this conference is co-sponsored by Jim Wetzel, the chair in Augustan Thought, and he's been really supportive of us and help us put on this conference. Um, we'd also like to thank John Carvalho. Um, he's the chair of our department, who's helped us out a lot, and Jack Caputo, who's um, just been helping us organize this from the very beginning. Right, so um, I'd like to thank everyone, first off, for traveling here uh, through such inclement weather, although it kind of let up. Um, but yeah, we're really excited about the uh, presentations uh, slated for today and tomorrow. Um, just to say a brief word about this conference theme, um, it was born out of research in uh, critical theory and political theology uh, conducted um, with uh, Dr. Annika team. Um, we're proud to say it reflects the interests of uh, many in our department um, and are excited that such a stellar group of uh, speakers are giving us uh, their time today and tomorrow to talk about the unique theoretical ground um, at the convergence of political thought and theology. Um, <clears throat> there have been a few changes in the titles of papers being presented today, um, and the moderators will alert you to these changes, so take note in your program. Um, our first session um, will start momentarily. Um, it'll be moderated by uh, Dr. Ray Chow from Duke University. Um, we'll have a uh, break at 4.30 and then resume with our keynote sessions uh, at that time. Um, so without further ado, I'd like to let Dr. Ray Chow uh, take the stage. Uh, hello? Uh, should I? Should if I you'd like. Here? Sure, yeah. It's a great honor to be here um, uh, to introduce my dear friends, um, Radhan Nula and Alenka Tsupanchik. So without further ado, let me say a few words about who they are. Radhan Nula is professor of philosophy at the University of Ljubljana and the author of the very well-known uh, a classic by now, A Voice and Nothing More, and also with Slavoj Žižek, uh, Opera's Second Death. He tells me that the title of his talk is now in Latin, so um, rather than pronouncing um, the title myself, I'm going to let him tell you in his own words. Alenka Sopancic is a um, full-time researcher at the Slovenian Academy of Sciences and Arts, a member of the Ljubljana Psychoanalytic Society, and a faculty member of the European Graduate School. She is the author of many books, um, among which are, in English, um, The Ethics of the Real, The Shortest Shadow, Nietzsche's Philosophy of the Two, the Art One In on Comedy, and Why Psychoanalysis, Free Interventions. Um, let us give uh, Mladan and Alenka a very warm welcome. Can I speak from here, or you hear me? Oh. Hmm? Micro is not on. Micro is not on. Okay, I'll go there. So first, um, thank you very much for the invitation. It's really a great pleasure to be here. 
And um, then I owe some apologies for changing the topic, the title. Um, the, the first paper I wanted to give uh, entitled this enigmatic uh, title, Officers, Maids and Chimney Sweepers, the title that comes from Kierkegaard, uh, was, I thought, um, maybe not in tune with the rest of the conference, the question of apocalypse. It just addressed some questions in psychoanalysis. So I decided eventually to, instead of giving a hardline psychoanalytic paper, to give a hardline Hegelian paper and to address this, uh, this strange question of Hegel or the apocalypse, Hegel and the apocalypse, from a completely different angle uh, than the Derrida's paper, no, no Apocalypse Not Now, which is the sort of starting point for this, um, for this conference. Uh, so the title runs in Latin, Si Fractus Elabatur Orbis, which in a free translation would be, If the world comes tumbling down, if the world is ruined. And I'll explain where this comes from and um, why this title. So the beginning of Hegel's logic, the notorious three paragraphs that amount to about one page, famously hinges on the dramatic divide between being and nothing, or rather the non-divide, the coincidence of the two. In the first remark that follows this terse opening, Hegel tries to give some context to the austerity of the first paragraphs, and counteract some common sense objections that may easily spring to mind. Thus, one of his digressions deals with the famous Kantian criticism of the ontological proof of God's existence, the question whether determinate existence can follow from the mere concept. And he takes up the popular version of Kant's argument, which deals with the problem in what way the imagined hundred dollars, which is taller in the original, and the translation is not without humor, although it's uh, etymologically correct, in what way the imagined hundred dollars may differ or not from the really existing hundred dollars. The concept of a hundred dollars, Kant says, is not augmented through perception, so that the existing hundred dollars have exactly the same content as the conceived or imagined ones. Yet there is, unfortunately, no simple way to draw their actual existence from their concept. And the same goes for the concept of God, or does it? But what, if anything, follows from there for the very concept of being? Now, leaving completely aside the question whether one can treat the existence of God in the same way as the existence of $100. And Hegel makes the following, the following comment, and this is where my title stems from. The move from particular finite being to being as such in its totally abstract universality is to be regarded not only as the very first theoretical demand, but also as the very first practical one. For when a lot of fuss is made about $100, that it does make a difference to my financial state, whether I have them or not, still more, the, more whether I am or not, or something else is or is not, we can then be reminded that human being quite apart from such financial situations in which the possession of a hundred dollars will in fact be a matter of indifference, so that the human being ought to raise his mind to this abstract universality in which it is in fact indifferent to him whether the hundred dollars 
whatever the quantitative relation that they might have to his financial state, are or are not, just as it would be indifferent to him whether he himself is or is not, that is, whether he is or is not in finite life, and so on. And then comes this quote, si fractus illabatur orbis impavidum ferient ruine, a Roman even said, and still more, or the Christian to find himself in this state of indifference. End of quote. There will be no more long quotes, sorry. That's the only one. So this Latin quote providing the punchline stems from Horace, who in the third ode depicts a stoic hero, undaunted even by the collapse of the entire universe around him. Literally, it would mean, if the world should break in pieces around him, the ruins would leave him undaunted, fearless. Or there is a delightful free rendition by Joseph Edison. Should the whole frame of nature around him break, in ruin and confusion hurled, he unconcerned would hear the mighty crack and stand secure amidst a falling world. <clears throat> so my proposal would be to consider not the apocalypse that stands as the impending catastrophe at the end, but rather the universal ruin that conditions and frames the beginning, the in inaugurating thought and being, the apocalypse that precedes thought and being. Hegel's first reflection, the first comment on the question of being, being as such, pure being, without further determination, as the famous opening sentence runs, is that the very act of thought is not merely a theoretical move, a process of abstraction from all particular finite and determinate beings, so as to arrive to considering being as such, but involves a practical decision, a resolve, a resolution, a call for a stance which is as much theoretical as practical in the same go and indistinguishably. One has to sever the ties to all possible beings, their particularities and determinations, the possible use or benefit or harm, disentangle oneself, cut, so as to come to the point where not merely the existence of $100 in one's pocket is completely indifferent, but also where one's own existence is completely indifferent as well as the existence of the world. One has to disentangle oneself from oneself. And the phenomenology was a long and elaborate process of doing this. Any determinate being may exist or not, including me and the whole world around me, and I have to think, consider pure being as such, against the background of my and its possible absence, demise, the total ruin, the disappearance of all finite and determinate beings. So there is indeed something like a nuclear catastrophe awaiting us on the first page of the logic. The possibility of total erasure of all things finite and determinate. A catastrophe not pertaining to the end of times, to the end of history, the disappearance of mankind, to apocalypse, but as the very precondition of thought. There is the nuclear cataclysm lurking in the very first decision to think. That would be, there, there would be no thought without it, for if one is to think, being and hence, therefore, in the, in the thought, and therefore nothing, the most problematic therefore in the history of philosophy, the apocalypse should already have happened. Thinking entails the very possibility of an apocalypse. Not as the revelation of truth at the end, the ultimate revelation, the unveiling of something that was structurally hidden so that history could unfold 
on the presupposition of its being hidden, to be unveiled at the end of times, but as the cut that precedes the beginning, the cut that must have happened in order to begin at all, begin properly, with being pure being without further determination. No thought without apocalypse. No being without apocalypse. So there is like the apocalypse of being, not as a revelation, but as its precondition. For if a couple of, uh, apocalypse must already have happened for being to be there, and there is the problem, be there, what would it mean? It is for that reason not revealed as such. It is only there as a pure cut. To be sure, the possibility of annihilation of me and the world is not its actuality. The stoic hero that Horace depicts as the model of courage observes undaunted the world coming to ruin, intrepidly covered by its ruins falling on his head, without flinching, without blinking an eye. He observes his own intrepidity in the face of calamity, remaining impavidus, fearless, no doubt narcissistically enjoying his own undauntedness. The bigger the disaster, the greater he is. And this is also in line with Hegel's criticism of Stoicism or of all endeavors of self-effacement. So he is the survivor of the nuclear disaster. Thought is the survivor of a nuclear disaster, its hair, its legacy, its inscription, not the traceless disappearance of humankind along with all its archives that Derrida is talking about. It survives the apocalypse that conditioned its possibility. It turns it into an asset, a cut that one can build on, a catastrophe that one can economize, a total disappearance that one can accumulate, the black pit of nothingness, which is nevertheless something, even if not determinate and simply existing in the mode of finite beings. A Roman stoic hero could already envisage this, and so should a fortiori, a Christian one, says Hegel, not merely by the courageous indifference to all adversity, but also against the backdrop of creatio ex nihilo, that strikes all being with contingency, opening the Christian Leibnizian question of why is there rather being instead of nothing. There is like a progress in catastrophe in this paragraph, its escalation. The Christian one looms louder than the, the Romans could imagine and demands greater intrepidity. So is the nuclear catastrophe, which makes for the first time the annihilation technically possible, to be considered as the next stage in this amplification, or perhaps as the humanity finally catching up with ex nihilo, with ad nihilum. The annihilating catastrophe that necessarily precedes thinking, is it a fantasy or not? Of course it's on the one hand a fantasy, as is indeed the nuclear catastrophe, as Derrida keeps pointing out. It hasn't taken place, we haven't been effaced, the stoic hero is still there, albeit covered by ruins, and so is Hegel to report on the annihilation or the non-annihilation and to state equally undaunted being, pure being. Yet there is a difference. The nuclear disaster is a fantasy based on the possibility of its future occurrence, and despite its technical feasibility, it is as such caught in the web of rhetoric as a, as a deterrent, a rhetorical stratagem, a ploy, a menace, a threat. And the threat can only function with uh, very real consequences, as long as it remains a threat. That is, inhabiting the symbolic, a reality not taking place, yet as such, real in its efficacy. 
What is the master but the master signifier that has the structure of a threat, an ultimately undefinable threat of what might happen and is maintained as a discourse as long as it doesn't happen, the protracted threat underpinning the discourse as the discourse of the master. But the catastrophe which precedes thought has nothing of a deterrent. It doesn't have the structure of a threat, but of a demand, an exigency, a decision to be taken, a practical decision for theory to be possible, a call for thought action. It is not there to prevent, but to enable. It is not there to sway the other or to coerce the other, for the other is equally indifferent as I am or should be in regard of my own disappearance. Neither I nor the other should count in this catastrophe. Otherwise, it wouldn't be the catastrophe that is the prerequisite. It is a catastrophe to be willed and espoused for thought to emerge. Although, whose will can it be if it cannot presuppose an I? Being divorced from an I, it is not, therefore, without a subject, a subject that coincides with this decision itself. So there is a difference between the ultimate calamity, the apocalypse, that might happen looming on the horizon as the always impending and postponed annihilation, and hence always involves a calculus, a strategic calculation, a ploy, or a perspective on an apocalyptic end of times that structures our temporality as on the way to a final damnation or redemption. And on the other hand, the catastrophe that must have already happened for thought to be there at all, something that instigates thought on the background of general annihilation. But being there is already too much as a qualification. This would already be Dasein, literally being there, a determinate existence of something. Dasein that for Hegel follows in the next step after being nothing and becoming, finally yielding something, something in general. Thought coincides merely with being without being there, and being premised on this annihilation coincides with nothing. So there you are, as the saying goes, or rather, there you are not at all. <clears throat> not to take into account one's own existence, nor that of the other, nor the world at large. Is it possible? One should perhaps remark that the thrust of this argument is opposed to the Cartesian argument that leads to Cogito. For the card as well, there has to be a disaster, taking away all certainties, all the supports in the world, which may well be the reality show staged by Malin Genie disguising its non-existence. All the supports in the evidential truth of reason, yet, and this is a huge yet, the one thing one cannot quite subtract in this universal catastrophe, which has ruined everything else, is precisely one's own being as the support of thought, as implied by thought, as the first person of Cogito and Sum, the first person sentence resisting this annihilation and which can offer rescue to the survivors, what Husserl would later mock as saving an island in the world against the universal epoche. Being is saved, and so he thought, and so am I, or rather on the condition that so am I, although the fact of catastrophe having taken place strike this sentence with utter ambiguity of both thought and being, which can only meet in a gesture exceeding the world, and such was Derrida's reading in Cogito and the History of Madness, a non-substantial and unsustainable being and thought, which then Descartes must hasten to substantialize, to pin to the other, in order to make, make them sustainable.
<coughs> so this would then go in the direction of cogito as the crack of being, as Slavoj Žižek maintained a number of times, or in the direction of Lacan's insistence on cogito as a subject that can be ascribed to the unconscious, that is precisely divorced from an eye. For Hegel, there is no first person of thought nor of being. Being and thought can emerge only on the condition of the disappearance of an eye, of any possible eye. In order for thought to emerge, there has to be a break. The rhetoric of break is ubiquitous in Hegel. And to give another instance, he says in the history of philosophy, when debating Epicurus, that being and thought intersect and ultimately uh, the point where they intersect is the split and the void, which in that particular instance where he discusses this has to do with the very concept of the atom. So there is, this is another facet of atomic catastrophe, FOI atoms introducing precisely the void. A quote, this is a brief quote, but I love this quote. This break, this interruption, this, this Unterbrechung, is the other side of atoms, the void. The movement of thought is such a movement that has in itself the break. And then there is something that he puts in the brackets. Thought is in man precisely what atoms and the void are in things. They're inner. Das Denken ist im Menschen, eben das, was die Atome und das Leere in den Dingen. Sein Inneres. End of quote. So this is like vintage Hegel. Thought, one could say, is the break of being. It's Unterbrechung, it's interruption. And what thought and objects have in common is the break that interrupts objectivity, introducing a void. Thought and word intersect in the void. But this is the very access that thought has to being. The thinking interruption interrupts the being itself. It opens up being for us. Or the other way around. Thought is placed into a rift of being. It is nothing but the rift of being. And the two directions, starting from either thought or from being, are indistinguishable for Hegel. It is not that thought, with its negativity, interrupts the continuity of being, its inertia, or breaks into some natural life, which was there before, into which one was immersed, to which one was attached, thought severing its connectivity. That was Kuzhev's misguided take on Hegel, with the negativity of self-consciousness introducing a break into the natural being. It is rather that this presupposed natural and continuous being was from the outset in rift with itself, detached from itself, and could only be construed as a retroactive fantasy of some primordial unity, always lost. But for Hegel, what is lost was never possessed in the first place. So is this fantasy, this not, this not taking into account one's own being, not the being of the world, supposing the erasure in catastrophe? One has, of course, survived it, thus put it to use. One has espoused an economy of annihilation, that is, its being redeployed. One has described it in the restricted economy of loss, to use Derrida's words, that is, the recuperation of the loss that one posits as unrestrained the reserve of the unreserved. One may well imagine general catastrophe and one's fearlessness in face of it. One may like to see oneself in the role of a hero intrepidly confronting this nothing. 
as in Caspar David Friedrich's uh, painting. Yet this fantasy has nevertheless produced a break, a rift with the fantasy uh, that the fantasy cannot quite cover up. Or may, maybe one can only produce a break through something that may have a structure of a fantasy. Catastrophe, imagined as, as it may have been, left the mark of detachment that cannot be healed or made whole. Or if there, if there is a sense to the Hegelian notion of totality, then it is premised on this unhealable crack. There is a real in this fantasy and introduces a break. There is a line of criticism of Hegel, going back to Bataille and Derrida's famous paper on it, that the negativity was after all not meant so seriously, since one has survived one's own annihilation, one's death, as the master who put life at stake can only be the master by capitalizing on his fearless defiance, yet remaining alive, attached to the life that he risked. As Derrida says, he still has to hold on to the remainder of natural life, which in civilization makes it possible to capitalize on what is gained from the risk, from war and from death itself. As individual or community, the master has to survive in order to enjoy the symbolic profit from death, risk, or endured. He takes risks and he dies in the name of something which is worth more than life, but something which still um, uh, will still be able to bear his name in life in the residue of living support. This is what made Bataille laugh. The master has to live, has to live on in order to cash in, uh, to cash on and enjoy the benefits of the death of the death risk he has risked. Um, is the truth of the end of quote? Is the truth of the catastrophe that one has survived? Is the truth of being disentangled from oneself and from the world that one has remained entangled, whatever one may imagine? Not quite. For the fantasy perhaps doesn't pertain to the act of disconnection, of courageously severing the ties, but rather to having natural ties at all inhabiting the world without catastrophes in the first place. What a catastrophe brings about is not the radical shattering of some primordial world and self into which we are naturally immersed, but rather the fact that they have been disconnected from the outset. Katrin Malabu, who is here, has written some beautiful pages on this, on our always being detached from ourselves, on what she calls the heteroaffection as the, at the bottom not the auto-affection of a self of an I. It's this primordial world of relations and connectivities that is phantasmatic. Its bottom line is, there is a relation. And Hegel's imagined catastrophe opposes this by, there is no relation. This is what enables or starts off dialectics as a non-apocalyptic thinking. Apocalypse has already happened, not to be awaited at the end, the final revelation, and the absolute knowledge is precisely a non-revelation. Hence the temporality of philosophy always coming late, coming too late, as Hegel says in the famous spot in the introduction of philosophy of right, and the temporality of an end of history, art, philosophy, that has already taken place, which is perhaps a more uh, liberating perspective than the blackmail of Unless you do X, catastrophe will happen. If there is no relation, 
and there is no relation to be re-established, reconnected, healed, recaptured, made whole again. And the whole notion of Aufhebung in Hegel is ultimately premised on this. That there is no original unity to preserve, to retain, to recuperate, to patch up. That there is something to be constructed by thought, by action, on the backdrop of this non-relation, of this loss of something that was never possessed. The fantasy is rather that of some primordial possession that was jeopardized by catastrophe and hence was lost. But what was lost was never possessed in the first place. And this, this possession is what comes to light in the catastrophe. So I will make a brief, a very brief remark on what demands a, tons of books have been written on this. Uh, on the first sentence of the logic. Having survived the initial apocalypse, the total annihilation, the nuclear war, what is left? What can one say having survived? So after hundreds and hundreds of pages of the phenomenology, dismantling all possible holds of consciousness, teaching it not how to survive, but how to espouse catastrophe against its will, there comes the first sentence that Hegel actually says in his own voice. If there could be a voice of, at all, there's no voice of being in Hegel. So he says what? Being, comma, pure being, hyphen, without further determination, full stop. So I don't want to enter into any sort of exegesis of this, which was massively commented upon. I, I just want to point out two things. The first one is the punctuation. The punctuation, the comma and the hyphen, which structured this first pronouncement which is not a sentence. For the first sentence proper is not a sentence at all. There is no grammatical structure of a proposition, of a predicate being ascribed to a subject. Being has no predicates. One cannot legitimately make a statement about being. And this absence of predicates will come to count. There is instead, first, the punctuation, and second, the repetition. Sein, reine Sein. So Hegel introduces a cut. He repeats being twice in the first statement. One cannot say merely being, but the minimal utterance would be being, being. There is like the surreptitious move of repetition, something pushing Hegel to repeat, a sort of Wiederholungszwang, compulsion to repeat being, to turn the first statement into an insistence of being rather than the mere assertion of being. But one cannot step in the same being twice. Is the second being the same as the first one? One could say, in the beginning, there are not two beings, but being posited twice. Or in the beginning, there is a gap. There is a gap in being, a gap between the first and the second being, splitting the being from itself by the mere cunning of the grammatical structure. And this form is not innocent or indifferent, nor is the punctuation. Being insists before ever existing. It insists as a repetition and a cut, the comma and the hyphen. So once Hegel comes to this first pronouncement, it is very curious indeed. It sticks to the minimal, but the minimal is a redoubled minimal, the cracked minimal of being. Catastrophe has left its mark in the comma and the hyphen that separate being from itself. They are the only attributes of being in this non-proposition which refrains from ascribing attributes. So this is my very, very short comment on this first sentence. Now I'm coming to the second part.
But what then of the major Hegelian sin? This is spelled out, for instance, under the heading of, let's say, telos and totality. The initial separation, the catastrophe, coming ultimately to a closure. Teleology leading to the abstruse figure of absolute knowledge. Telos and totality are a bit too long to qualify as four-letter words, but their function is largely the same. There are hardly any bigger sins in the post-Hegelian philosophy than to subscribe to these twin monsters. And it seems as nobody in his right mind could possibly seriously propose that these are the paths to follow, the concepts to be recuperated, or even to launch new ways of thinking. They largely fit into a narrative, a plot, along with some others that point in the same direction, like ontotheotiliology, a tongue twister of 17 letters that are designed to conceal its nature of a four-letter word. Or, more simply, metaphysics. The narrative that underpins these words has all the makings of a foundational myth, indeed the grand narrative that underpins the supposed end of grand narratives. There once was a period ruled by Talos and totality, caught in the metaphysical enclosure, reaching its pinnacle with Hegel, the last metaphysician. But then we have fortunately shuffled off these fetters and bid farewell to these modes that kept the thought captive for millennia and freely espoused whatever, openness, multiple heterogeneity, proliferation of differences, becoming simulacra, fluxes, dissemination of traces, animality, vibrant matter, contingency, chance, events. We have debunked in totality the budding germ of totalitarianism and by discarding telos, we have put an end to an end, to the end. We have finally breathed freely. So this, may, this sounds like a caricature, and indeed it's, it's intended to be one. But it nevertheless captures the core of a modern doxa, the free-floating set of assumptions that largely shapes the commonly received background of modern thought, even if it is expressed in a more sophisticated and nuanced vocabulary. This, of course, doesn't do justice to the serious endeavors of thought which address these questions. It only tries to spell out the inveterate rule of opinion that subtends the zeitgeist with its tenuous and tenacious tentacles and places serious endeavors within the makeshift framework of doxa. There is something intractable and seemingly self-evident in, in the seem, seemingly self-evident nature of this plot and something that gets lost and obfuscated by its pervasive spread. There is something in this foundational myth of modernity that has a structure of casting off, dispensing with, say, telos and totality and their avatars, but which keeps them at its core first in a negative form, serving as a springboard and a backdrop against which to initiate modernity. There once was an era ruled by these monsters, and particularly in the monstrous figure of Hegel as a shorthand for an epoch. One installs this massive mythical entity against which one sets up one's own project. But did such an era and such a figure ever exist, notwithstanding its common understanding? This myth is concomitant with other foundational myths of modernity, say the inaugurating modern art, like mimesis. There once was the mimetic art that modernity has heroically done away with. Against this, one could maintain two theses. First, there never was 
such a thing as mimetic art as it is usually handily described. And second, no modernity has rather disavowed the mimetic kernel without bidding farewell to it. Or to take, for instance, the Brechtian notion of estrangement, of effect, which in this naive vulgate version relies on the foundational narrative. There once was the Aristotelian theater based on empathy and identification. And then Brecht came along and undermined its presuppositions by the effect of estrangement. But did such a theater ever exist? Consequently, one could maintain there never was such a theater which would answer this description. And second, nevertheless, the Brechtian estrangement didn't quite dismantle it. Or the narrative of the, of Benjamin's notorious piece, the Vulgata of this notorious piece, which is usually spelled out like there once was the oratic art and the advent of mechanical reproduction has dismantled it. Again, one could maintain this. There never wasn't quite the art that would answer that description. It's actually Adorno already pointed out. But a major example of this foundational myth is no doubt the massive entity called metaphysics, relying on such things as telos and totality, which found its demise with Hegel, against which one can again maintain there was never quite such an entity. For whatever was intriguing and productive in the grand philosophical tradition fell outside of this image, of this commonly supposed framework. And no, we haven't been happily rid of it, be it as a negative internal condition or as a disavowed kernel or in the shape of novelties, which actually fare far worse than the antiquated model one has allegedly suppressed. But the point, as with all these examples, is not to defend some good metaphysical tradition against its detractors, not to celebrate the non-metaphysical, post-metaphysical ways of thinking, but rather to try to dismantle or dislocate the very opposition on which this myth is based. To try not to think in terms of this massive opposition and to find other divining lines. This goes in the first place for the bulky opposition between closure and openness, which is massively around when talking about Hegel. If one is to follow the textbook script, then the major Hegelian fallacy lies in having presented a self-enclosed system, indeed a totality, closing upon itself through the absolute alienating itself from itself and then reappropriating itself. Spirit lost and found again, thus sublating all externality and otherness in a circle of circles, precluding all openness and contingency of becoming. The axiom of this view is open is good, closed is bad. To which one could add, openness is the modern way of closure. And this uh, formula actually stems from Agamben's comment on Kafka's parable of the law, epitomizing our predicament as the gate of the law, which is always open, the opening which actually amounts to its closure. Nothing is more claustrophobic than openness. And when Agamben deals with openness, which is his problem, the very title of his book is The Open, then the problem is how to open the very oppressive structure of openness itself, which is much harder than to open a closure. There is a formula of disavowal, so often, uh, uh, of, often at work when dealing with Hegel. The formula 
pinpointed by Octave Manoni in its minimal form, I know very well, but nevertheless. So uh, one could sum up a lot of literature on Hegel by, I know very well that in Hegel this is not any usual closure, identity, telos, totality, but nevertheless, I believe that it ultimately amounts to the same thing. There is maybe a fetishistic belief at the bottom. If Hegel uses these words, then he must mean what we imagine that these words mean, what they mean in the usual parlance, and what they have largely meant in, through the tradition. It's true that Hegel sharply criticized this tradition. This was his grand proclaimed ambition. But nevertheless, he's ultimately proclaimed guilty of the very sins that he ultimately criticized. To be sure, there is no shortage of spots where Hegel praises Talos in totality and proclaims himself to be an enthusiastic supporter of their cause, with which one could rest the case. Yet, there is a general structure of the Hegelian argument. One can detect it in a number of places, which one could somehow summarize like this. The best way to dismantle X is X itself. The best way to dismantle, say, identity is to hold on to the notion of identity, look closely at what it imminently implies, and let it be dismantled by itself, by its very form. The best cure against identity is identity itself, for it involves an insuppressible difference at its core. It is a cracked identity, whose crack cannot be healed and repaired. And if one then reasserts identity, it is only as based on this crack, flaunting it, or else, there is a traditional form of proposition taken for granted since Aristotle, S equals P, with the externality of subject and predicate. And the best way to dismantle it is by the propositional form itself, looking hard at how it involves opposite conclusions from what was assumed. As a subject, as a firm bearer of predicates, and this is the Hegel, Hegel's theory of propositional form, its retroactive movement, the double reading it takes. Further, there's the idea of philosophy aiming at the absolute knowledge, endlessly striving for it by dispensing with doxa and all form, false forms of knowledge. And the best way to dismantle it is by proposing this absolute knowledge itself as an empty point, or as a mere full stop, or as a mere pointer to the way that led there in the midst of doxa, as it were. The best way to tackle Christianity is to dismantle it by itself, and this is the line that Slavoj has amply pursued. Or there is a state. Was Hegel the thinker of the French Revolution or the Prussian state philosopher? How could he be both? And one, can, uh, one quote from Brecht can suffice. Where Hegel, uh, um, Brecht, this is a wonderful quote, actually, I want, I want read it in, in its length, but he says Hegel was the greatest comedian of all times. And uh, the quote ends, politics was also one of his jokes. The greatest revolutionaries exhibit themselves as the students of the greatest defender of the state. So there's this uh, co comedy in Hegel. Uh, uh, maybe I'll... I will just read a bit of this uh, Brecht's quote. He, um, he denied that one was the same as one, 
And not only because everything that exists irresistibly and tirelessly passes over into something else, and even if it's opposite, but because nothing at all is identical with itself. For him, concepts constantly rocked back and forth in a rocking chair, which at first makes a quite favorable impression until the chair is overturned. His book, The Great Logic, is one of the great comic works of world literature. It is about the mode of life of concepts, those slippery, unstable, unaccountable existences, how they insult each other and fight with knives, and they sit down to dinner together as if nothing ha has happened. Okay, enough, enough of this Brecht quote, which is, I think, very nice. Uh, and last but not, not least, there is this telos in totality. And um, one can prolong this list almost indefinitely. And the best antidote against it is telos in totality itself. Telos that requires the full espousal of contingency, the becoming accidental of the essence, as Hegel's formula goes in the logic, and can only be retroactively established in a loop which is never simply a loop, and totality that reflects in itself its non-totalizable nature, the crack, the singularity it is premised on. So is this dismantling or is it not? Is this a ruse, indeed a ruse of reason, playing the cunning of reason, playing perhaps its tricks on Hegel himself? Could one then say, of course Hegel dismantles any naive notion of identity, proposition, telos, whatever, but only to endorse it all the better. Abandoning the naive form makes the kernel that subtended this form intractable, ensuring its survival precisely by holding onto it in a sophisticated and subtler way, which takes into account all criticism, and to make it quick, all unsublatable alterity. As being part and parcel of this entity itself, embracing its dissolution, only to secure the pure form of its core, which then becomes unassailable, irrefutable, invincible, resistant, and impervious. Holding on to a word, to a name, doesn't one thereby espouse the entity it names despite the roundabout of dialectical mediation and reflection? Isn't this the very structure of disavow? But disavowing what? What's in a name? Would Telos in totality by any other name smell just as sweet or as rotten? Or has retaining the name the capacity to kill the smell which emanated from the happy union of the name and the thing, the union that Hegel was out to undo? So this is perhaps dialectics at its core, undoing the natural smell that quasi-naturally accompanies the name. So Hegel's question could be maybe it's exactly the opposite of Juliet's, can the rose completely change the smell by keeping the same name? Is adopting other names prerequisite to abandoning a certain structure, a pattern, or a straitjacket of thought? Derrida says somewhere in dissemination, there are no metaphysical concepts, only a certain way that concepts are connected, directed, vectorized, orchestrated. This is where metaphysics lies. While changing or abandoning the name is obviously not enough, and keeping the name is perhaps not enough for name-calling. The strategy would then be keeping the concept as the best way of undoing the assumed connectivity, the orchestration, keeping the name while changing the vector 
that underlies it. And if one adopts the opposite strategy, which is much more common with Monty Python, and now for something completely different, there lies the danger of the disavowal, the same kernel lurking at the bottom. There's something of the Freudian joke in it. And you know Freudian joke, um, the, one of the famous jokes in his uh, book on the jokes. You are telling me that you are going to Krakow so that I would believe you are going to Lembeck. But I know for a fact that you are indeed going to Krakow, so why are you lying to me? And there is a different strategy of this joke when it is with Hegel. Hegel says he is going to Krakow, and everybody somehow believes he is indeed going to Krakow, if he says so. But so he can quietly make his way to Lemberg. This structure of the name being retained as a strategy of its dislocation is linked to the very peculiar way of Hegelian negativity which is not a negativity to be superseded in some final step or synthesis. Say, there is identity, which by its form turns out to be non-identity, to have always been based on a split which made it possible to construct this identity at all. Yet this split is not something that subsists per se independently of its tension with identity. It only works in its bosom. So keeping the final identity, the identity of identity and non-identity, is then the way of dismantling identity on the condition of keeping it. The split and the displacement being incorporated in the very same place as the entity itself. This negativity, the key to Hegel, after all only exists in the positive entities and prevents them from being what they are. It is their bug. The invisible bug, the pure distance, from not from A to A, but from A to itself. The strategy of asserting X as dismantling of X, not its negation, and not as the Aufhebung of negation either. Both either extolling or exercising negativity as the pervasive key to Hegel, from Nietzsche to Deleuze, and putting forth the sublation of negativity in a final reconciliation as the Hegelian flaw, from Marx to Adorno, miss the point. The point is perhaps tinier, there is a bug in the absolute, not as its unsublatable rest. And this was Derrida's line. What remains of the absolute knowledge is the subtitle of uh, Gla. But as its in invisible inner rift, the gap between the absolute and itself, conditioning its sich anderswerden, which is the excellent Hegelian word, its self-othering. But the bug is not to be spelled out independently as a separate entity apart. And the various names of heterogeneous, unsublatable, diversity, multiplicity, try to do this. For it doesn't possess a consistency or identity apart. It is just a rift, pushing forward the whole movement, separating each entity from itself. And the absolute knowledge is nothing else but the pointer to this bug. There one should consider the absolute not as the ultimate sublation of all otherness, but rather according to its etymology, as absolution, absolving, letting go, as entlassen. And this is Hegel's word, or as aufgebung, giving up, rather than aufhebung, retaining, suppressing, or elevation. There is the Hegelian image of a circle, or worse still, the circle of circles, as the recurring image of encompassment and totality. 
Derrida speaks of the metaphysical obsession with the circle and the triangle as the hidden patterns how to dispose entities, two metaphysical gestalts, and the Hegelian triad is often imagined as this triangle, despite Hegel's warning that there have to be four angles to this triangle. Why would everything be eventually encompassed in the image of the circle? In the preface to Phenomenology, Hegel says, it is the coming to be of itself, the circle that presupposes its end as its goal and has its end for its beginning, and which is actual only through this accomplishment, accomplishment and its end. End of quote. So here we have it, the paramount statement of teleology, the circle presupposing its end in the beginning and rejoining it at the end. One could rest the case there. Hegel couldn't be more explicit. But then, a few paragraphs later, we read this. The circle that remains self-enclosed and like substance holds its moments together is an immediate relationship, one therefore which has nothing astonishing about this. Das unmittelbare und darum nicht verwundersame Verhältnis, not a, a relation to be admired. There is nothing admirable in the circle. But that the accidental as such, detached from what circumscribes it, what is bound in this actual only in its context with others, should attain an existence of its own and a separate freedom. An eigenes Dasein und abgesonderte Freiheit. This is the tremendous power of the negative. End of quote. So the circle can only be premised on the elements being abgesondert, being cut off, separate, gaining autonomous existence, espousing the accidental, the contingent, setting free, cutting, asserting a proper existence and the freedom set apart. All this seems to be at odds, indeed the extreme opposite of the idea of a circle. It cannot be a circle in any usual sense. And since Hegel didn't have at his disposal a better topological model, he again proposed the circle as the dismantlement of the circle. We maybe have a better model and can propose a Möbius strip for this circle as the negation of the circle. It is a circle formed on the basis of a split, the embodiment of the very impossibility of being a circle. The Möbius strip is based on a cut, and what results is the torsion, which is everywhere on the strip, but not to be localized, the very principle of this form. This could serve as an image of the Hegelian subject, the subject is both the cut, conditioning the strip, and its ubiquitous torsion, its constant becoming other, the one constantly being split into two, and the two never fusing into one, yet on the condition of it nevertheless remaining a strip. A strip based on the cut, the cut of the negative, a strip premised on separation, on absonderung. So there is like a new topology of knowledge at stake rather than new ontology. A topology that places the interior and the exterior, the essence and the appearance, the hidden and the apparent, and all other traditional dualities and oppositions on the same level, on the same surface, while being on the obverse side, opposed, the negative of each other, separated by the cut. The whole exists at each point only as a partition, a division, and the global torsion, which can be another name for the Hegelian subject, as this survivor of the catastrophe. The catastrophe which, having always already happened, introducing a rift, 
inhabits each moment as the always absolute task of thought in this very rift. The absolute as the name one should hold on to against the pressure of apocalyptic times. Thank you. Yes, I would also like to start by thanking, uh, of course, Rachel and everybody else involved in organizing this conference. It's a great pleasure to be here today and give this talk. Uh, my title changed uh, as well, at least in relationship to the one that was announced previously on the web. Uh, the program has the right title, which is uh, Tearing with the imper Imperative or simply the Imperative. And I will start out with some more general uh, remarks, namely that uh, one could say that uh, apocalyptic tone has indeed returned to politics and at least in some, some form of it has returned. Know it in these parts of the world. Uh, the paradox, of course, is that these very measures are already doing away with the kind of life that we know in these parts of the world. So what they're supposed to protect us against is already here at work in the very measure they, measures they impose in order to keep it at bay which is, of course, precisely what the, the other, let's say, left side keeps repeating. You are not protecting us from apocalypse, you are the apocalypse. You know, there's this famous documentary, Four Riders of Apocalypse, which kind of makes this point precisely. Trying to keep this thing going is the apocalypse. So be it social, economic, uh, environmental, and so on. Um, but what these two politically opposite stands often have in common, and by pointing this out, I don't want to dismiss this, uh, let's say, leftist approach as some simply sharing the same ground. I just want to point how this logic is imposed, I think, upon the, the opposite side as well. What they, these two politically opposite sides have in common is the following argumentative logic. We are running out of time. There is a clear pressure, urgency. If we do not do or stop doing something, some kind of catastrophe will take place. In other words, I think what they have in common is the form of what Kant called hypothetical imperative, which founds the necessity of doing something on the being or non-being of something else. It seems indeed that in this particular kind of apocalyptic thinking and arguments, and especially precisely the one that the governments keep bombarding us with, there is very little space, if any, left for a simple, this is unacceptable. For immediately we face an avalanche of questions, uh, unacceptable for whom, why, on what grounds, and so on. So a simple and categorical no that would declare something unacceptable on its own grounds seems to be the most difficult, seems to be the most difficult, if not impossible thing. And I will simply take this cue, this pretext, and this opportunity uh, to talk today actually about the, the Kantian notion of the categorical imperative, which is supposed to be exactly this, absolutely necessary on its own grounds. 
so let me first just recall you the famous formulation. Act so that the maxim of your will can always hold at the same time as the principle giving universal law. This is the famous Kantian formulation of the categorical imperative from the critic of practical reason. This is the formulation of the supreme highest law of practical reason. Of course, a very unusual kind of moral law which does not tell me what to do, but only how, how to go about it, and situating this how entirely in the universalizability of the maxim of my conduct. So the moral law, this is the usual explanation, operates kind of on two levels. On the one hand, it operates or is supposed to operate as the criterion of morality. Based upon the test of logical universality, itself based upon the principle of non-contradiction. On the other hand, it operates or functions as that which sort of wakes us up, pinches us, spurs us, alerts us to something or incites us and this, we could say, is the level of the imperative as imperative. Do your duty, simply. And this is particularly the aspect that I would be interested in. So you know, and I won't go into this, how many commentators have pointed out that there are many, many difficulties to be uh, encountered on both levels, that there is this whole universality test is really problematic because all depends on how one defines the very terms of universality by means of which one tests the thing. So there will, there's been a lot of work done to show that this, this kind of thing doesn't add, uh, add up. Also, on the other side, uh, the, the side that I call this imperative as a call that eventually wakes us up, you have this perpetual question being asked, but what is the place of its enunciation? Where does it come from exactly? And all these difficulties in questions, of course, may simply make us turn away from Kant, or at least from his practical philosophy. Uh, but my bet here is a bit different. In a sense, perhaps less respectful of Kant, whom I don't hesitate to turn against himself, and more respectful to the thing that he pursues in his conceptual of practical philosophy, and which I think leaves its trace precisely in the form of this kind of paradoxes that one uh, runs into when reading Kant. So my aim is not to defend Kant, who of course as academic reference certainly doesn't need me defending him, but rather to exercise a kind of strategic, strategic pressure on him in order to make this thing appear perhaps more sharply this thing that he's pursuing, and then try to propose a kind of conceptualization of it. So I will propose a way of reading the categorical imperative which is not exactly Kantian, but which uh, develops the fundamental matrix of his conceptual proposition in a slightly different direction. So first, what exactly is this monumental significance of Kant's arguably revolutionary gesture on which depends his practical philosophy. Uh, first, I think it is crucial to emphasize that the Kantian revolution here is not that of introducing a new or possibly better kind of morality. It is not that since critique of practical reason, what has become more moral 
or started to appear less moral because of the notoriously high standards introduced by Kant. It is not simply that Kant captured, this is all, it is also not simply that Kant captured conceptually some important, let's say, social, uh, social historic changes that mark the birth of modernity and require then morality be based on different grounds. And along these lines, which sure are pertinent, Deleuze writes, for example, I will read you a quote from Deleuze from his book on Zacher Mazoch. He says, in the critic of practical reason, Kant gave us a rigorous formulation of a radically new conception in which the law is no longer regarded as dependent on the good, but on the contrary, the good itself is made to depend on the law. This means that the law no longer has its foundation in some higher principle from which it would derive its authority, but that it is self-grounded and valid solely by virtue of its own form. For the first time, we can speak of the law, regarded as an absolute without further specification of reference to an object. The Copernican revolution in Kant's critic of pure reason consisted in viewing the objects of knowledge as revolving around the subject, but the critic of practical reason, where the good is conceived as revolving around the law, is perhaps even more revolutionary. It probably reflected major changes in the world, end of quote. So this, of course, I think it is absolutely true. Uh, true. One should add, perhaps, however, that this break of modernity that is reflected here is also part of its self-understanding. And I think Kant was definitely part of the break his philosophy reflects, not simply a kind of reflection of it. But perhaps more importantly, one should add that, and this is where I will start with my argument, that this particular revolution, namely that law no longer revolves around the good, but vice versa, is actually a consequence rather than the inaugurating point of uh, the Kantian gesture. So what would this inaugurating point be? we find one of its most striking formulations in a footnote from the preface of the second critique. And I will now read you this footnote of which I will make a kind of a big case today. So this is the footnote. He says, Kant, a critic who wished to say something against that work, namely Grundwork for the Metaphysics of Morals, really did better than he intended when he said that there was no new principle of morality in it, but only a new formula. Who would want to introduce a new principle of morality and, as it were, be its inventor, as if the world has hitherto been ignorant of what duty is or had been thoroughly wrong about it? Those who know what a formula means to a mathematician will not regard this as something insignificant and unnecessary. End of quote. So in other words, Kant's point of departure, at least here, is that morality is already out there. It has always been. He just undertook to formalize it. So as you see, this is very much in contrast to the usual portrait of Kant as uh, theorizing the conditions of possibility to sometime perhaps act morally. It, is, it has to do with something that we start as already out there. 
So he just undertook to formalize it. But of course, just formalizing things is no innocent matter, much less so than Kant himself was likely to have believed. To produce a formula, not of what is moral, but I would rather say of how morality works when it is at work, is likely not only to sweep away a lot of what is contextually but not logically related to it. It is also likely to cause turmoil in the very logical or, if one prefers, discursive construction of universal morality. And this turmoil has certainly taken place and is part of these paradoxes that I mentioned at the beginning. Very simply put, once the focus has switched to the law, to the morality as law, its intrinsic paradoxes have come to light. And it was already Kant who brought most of these paradoxes to their radical articulation. And here I'm actually tempted to draw a kind of parallel between, I think, a largely misplaced criticism that befell psychoanalysis on account of its alleged phallocentrism and the criticism that befell Kant on account of the difficulties and discomforts, even tyranny, that his law is said to involve. You know, because psychoanalysis introduced for the first time the concept of phallus as the law around which somehow rotates the symbolic universe and it's the very problem around which it rotates, it has been accused of phallocentrism. Yet, as it is more than clear from history, phallocentrism can work splendidly and much better if phallus is not conceptually named or focused, spelled out, but reserved for mysteries. And it had been so for a very long time. So one tends to forget that it was only with the advent of psychoanalysis that the talk about phallocentrism really took off and uh, got the tools of its articulation. Prior to that, there was no concept with which to size and think what is going on here and why, of course. So, and I have the impression that to, to some extent, at least, something similar is involved in the Kantian gesture of refocusing the, the waste field of morality to the pure form of the law, not opposing them, but kind of trying to think it through in that way. And that it was only after Kant that actually the kind of criticism that we feel the law uh, and Kant as well uh, became possible. And I think this is also clearly when reads Nietzsche that to some extent, I mean, all the criticism of morality that he develops, some part I think it, is, it would not be possible to develop it in this way without uh, what Kant has really brought to light and exposed in, in his way of going about it. So it is not simply, although it is against, uh, directed against Kant, but I think it's also kind of possible only with and through Kant. So in this precise sense, of course, it is true, as Lacan has famously developed, this, that Saad is only possible after Kant. You know, that philosophy in the boudoir indeed came eight years after the critic of practical reason. Or, as Deleuze pointed out, that the law, as it uh, works in Kafka's universe, is only conceivable after Kant. But this is not simply criticism of the kind of flaw that occurs here. It is also to say that it was only with Kant and his formalization of morality that one was able to think this kind of 
paradoxes. That it produces or confronts us with when it cannot hide beyond the higher principle in the name of which it then commands us to do this or that. Um, so, of course, to take this perspective on the critic of practical reason could be, I, seem, I think, of some value if we take the question of the actuality of Kant's practical philosophy seriously. We know, you know, to what extent morality or ethics has started to function in the past decade or two as the kind of ideological trademark of depolitization of the social and of thinking about its antagonisms. And that all kinds of injustices, discriminations, uh, antagonisms, even wars, have been presented as primarily ethical problems of tolerance, of understanding and tolerating the differences, the other, and so on. And no longer as problems that can call for politics, that call for politics and also political answers. And this trend has lately, I think, come to a become less significant and the social antagonisms are seen again more and more as a political matter and question, and which I think is a good thing. So it is pertinent to ask why on earth should one bother at all with bringing the Kantian ethics into this debate again. But I think it is important and relevant and this is to the extent in which I think it can contribute something significant to the development of, I don't know how to call it, a kind of new concept of praxis, a concept of praxis which, of course, is always already political on some fundamental level. So I will not hold you in suspense as to where I think this actuality of Kant lies. Roughly speaking, there have been like two major modern ways or traditions of critically dealing with morality and its laws. Uh, one inaugurally associated with Nietzsche, and this is really broad sketch of it, is the so-called historicist or genealogist tradition emphasizing, if I really now simplify to the utmost, the relativity and the social historic embedment of the laws as instrument of power. So one of the principal gestures of power in this respect is supposed to be that of presenting as absolute or neutral something which actually results from a concrete historical configuration and relations of power. So large amount of critical work in this perspective consists in de-absolutizing uh, de the notion of the law, revealing it as heteronomy, its heteronomy, its dependence on so many other things. So, Kantian gesture, which I think inaugurates another modern tra tradition, is not opposite to this. It is different, but it is not simply opposite. It is not to insist against all odds and proofs to the contrary that law should nevertheless be conceived as uh, absolutely pure or neutral or something like this, not depending on anything else. And as to save it from these paradoxes exposed by historicist criticism. The point and the force of the Kantian procedure are something quite different. We should not forget that Kant was the first to say that it is impossible to name one single empirical instance in which law operates in a purely autonomous manner. 
so we could say, paraphrasing Hamlet, there needs no ghost of the historicist come from the field to tell us this. So the attempt to nevertheless think the universal law in its autonomy does not attempt to conceal this paradox, but I think rather takes it one step further, namely to the heart of the law itself, while at the same time it situates the law as the very point of, I would say, inconsistency of the empirical reality that structures being as being. I mean, this is at least the perspective of Kant, which is a kind of Hegelian perspective that I would suggest that we don't see the law as being situated on the other side of the pathological, that is to say of the whole field of reasons, causes, and uh, the natural causality that impels us to act in usually in usual circumstances, but actually that it, they are situated on the same uh, side and that this moral law, if I now spell out the thesis that I will then try to argue for and develop, is that the moral uh, law in the Kantian sense of the term comes from or rather takes place precisely at the point of a rift or cracking being, if I reuse the term that was already used and that Slavoj also uses. So this would be a kind of thesis that it is the, that the moral law or categorical imperative, and we will see why the imperative um, form of the imperative is a kind of situated, is the blind spot of the pathological chain of reasons, blind spot of the reality of being, and not simply something that um, kind of opposes it and, and tries to uh, forget about it. And now I will try to kind of uh, argue this. Um, so when Kant places the supreme law in the domain of reason and its autonomy, and when the law thus loses its grounding and justification in a higher principle, it doesn't become contingent or relative. On the contrary, relative is what it has been before, namely related to and dependent upon a higher good. It is only with its being placed in reason that it becomes absolutely necessary. So this facticity of the moral law, moral law is not grounded in or deducible from anything else. This is what Kant called factum der Vernunft, is here one with its absolute unconditional necessity. This is crucial in Kant. So, this is indeed more, patent in, pat, uh, indeed more than patent in Kant and in his conceptualizations of the moral law. Autonomy and freedom are not the opposite of necessity. As a matter of fact, transcendental freedom could be best defined as non-empirical necessity. That is precisely as absolute necessity. Or perhaps even better, freedom is the freedom to do what is absolutely necessary, imperative, in the situation where all kinds of other empirical necessities may go against it. Yet this absolute necessity is not something like an immediate necessity. It is related to the very form of the imperative, and we will come to that in a moment. 
But first, let us very briefly indicate, let me very briefly indicate where the usual criticism of Kant and of German idealism in general is too short, I think, in this respect. German idealism is often accused of one or both of the following things. First, that it has de-absolutized the universe, made it relative to or dependent on the subject. You know, this is the lately very popular objection uh, that was proposed or formulated um, by the so-called speculative realism, that we have lost the objective reality as absolute and that it only depends on the subject. Uh, so this is the first objection. And the second, that it has, um, uh, namely German idealism, the, uh, that it has absolutized the subject or reason, turning it into the new absolute. So where I think these kind of judgments go wrong and miss the point is that they fail to see how with German idealism the very notion of the absolute changes in a radical manner. Why? If you think of it traditionally, one spoke of the absolute as that from which everything followed and as the ultimate reason of everything else, of everything that is. And it was on the basis of this, that this everything else was seen as absolute in the sense of independent of the subject. So the, there is this one sense of the absolute as being the reason of everything that is, and the sense of the absolute as independent of the subjective constitution of it is slightly different sense of the absolute. So these things where uh, reality was supposed to be real and absolute it is on its own standing because, because of its relation to this absolute. So if the absolute traditionally appeared as the form from which followed everything else and as the ultimate reason or ground of everything that is, then with German idealism and particularly with Hegel one could say this everything else is conceived as absolute in its own autonomous movement. And the subject or reason is conceived as an inherent part of this of this absolute as being, as of this absolute as being that has no outside. More precisely, subject or reason names the point of the internal rift precisely of being that has no outside in the sense of a higher um, foundation. It is in uh, it is the way in which. So the subject or the reason is the way in which the non-existence of the outside, that is to say, I don't know, of, of God or some other ultimate reason for everything that is, is inscribed or perceptible in the inside, in the everything that is. It is inscribed in it as a singular torsion, torsion of its structure. The very structure of what is there. And so it is a structure that is not completely, it is immanent, but it is at the same time, it uh, includes this kind of a fall, this kind of torsion, which is not, uh, which makes it not simply reducible to itself, to put it in this way. And if I perhaps uh, 
if you remember, Lacan will, uh, uh, will call this structure the not all um, and formulated it with the, with the following paradox. You know, he says the, the, the way he formalizes the structure of what he calls the not all is the following. There is no x that does not belong to a certain function, this phi x function, and secondly, not all x belong to this function. So we have, it is not that there is an exception that founds a totality, there is a different kind of totality and perhaps rejoining what Mladen was talking about just uh, before, one could say perhaps that this not all, the Lacanian not all, is not the opposite of totality simply. It is not simply about some kind of perhaps chaotic multiplicity. It is a paradoxical totality that includes its own exception that is to say the exception that as exception is supposed to constitute it as totality. So there is, it is really a shift to a different kind of uh, structure and uh, uh, the way it functions. So the, back to, to Kant and to the argument that I was making, this non-existence of the exception coincides with the rift inherently at work in all there is. It is a rift of being, a point where being, we could say, is not qua being, a point of being which is not fully covered by being, a kind of have being, not full spelled being. And subject uh, or reason is not a new absolute, it's not a new tenant in the office of the absolute in this pyramid sense. It is a radically new concept of the absolute, precisely. Or one could also say absolute necessity is in German idealism the very concept of the absence of higher reason. They coincide at this point. Only that what has no higher reason is absolutely necessary. So my point here would be that the, the absence of the ultimate reason of all things does not lead to the absolutization of contingency here or to a simple opposition between, let's say, natural necessity and rational freedom. Instead, it leads to the difference between necessity and absolute necessity, okay? between two kinds of necessities. Necessity and absolute necessity as the very point of freedom. In Kant and Hegel, the, the, the absence of the ultimate or last reason of all things leads to the crack of being as the very and only point of absolute necessity. One that precisely reason cannot uh, give ground on, give up upon. So absolute necessity springs from the point in being which is not fully covered by being and is not translatable simply in the chain of reasons. So now I would like to propose a few reflections on the question of the imperative in Kant, such as may follow from this perspective as well as from what I suggested at the beginning, namely that it could be refreshing to look at the Kantian formulation of morality as a formulation of what is already out there when we are dealing with morality. How does morality work when it is at work? and not as a formulation of what we ought to do in order to become moral or to act, act morally. 
More precisely, the, the latter is already included in the former. That is to say, morality is, of course, always about what ought to be and not simply about what is there. But so far as morality is part of the world and can certainly take this to be the case, it is in, its inherent ought to, this Zolen, is also part of what is out there. So the divide between what is and what ought to be, in this sense, is inherent to what is. If I use again this metaphor of folding of what is out there that I used before. So it is inherent in what is there and it's not simply a kind of a purely subjective potentiality that then uh, in some heroic endeavor one sets out to realize. So I've said before that freedom is the freedom to do what is absolutely necessary in the situation where all kinds of other empirical necessities may go against it. Freedom and imperative are synonymous because the imperative is what creates the possibility of doing something else than this. We could also turn this around and say that the truth of the possible, in the strong sense of the term, is the imperative. This is, in short, I think, what is at stake in the famous Kantian formula, you must, therefore you can. And Kant illustrates this with this famous example of the apologue of the gallows, of which I will only recall here the second part. Ask someone, suggests Kant, whether he thinks it would be possible for him to overcome his love for life, however great it may be, if his sovereign threatened him with sudden death, unless he made a false deposition against an honorable man whom the ruler wished to destroy under a plausible pretext. And Kant goes on to, to say, I quote, whenever he would or not, he perhaps will not venture to say, but that it would be possible for him, he would certainly admit without hesitation. He judges, therefore, that he can do something because he knows that he ought, Zol, and he recognizes that he is free, a fact which, without the moral law, would have remained unknown to him." End of quote. So I believe aside, again, here many difficulties that these kind of examples that can propose a critique of practical reason um, can lead to. In the first part of this example, actually I commented at some length in its paradoxes elsewhere. But let's simply say that Kant's example here is sufficient at one point, namely it is sufficient in making us see what he means by stating that the moral law gives form or I know, opens place for something in the reality of being which is only there as imperative and does not exist as logical part simply of this reality. That is to say, it is not, there is no binding reason, we could say, in this reality for me not to tell the sovereign what he wants to hear. In other words, it is not simply that there are different possibilities, ways of acting, there on display, and the categorical imperative is supposed to direct us towards the right one. Rather, it is that the set of possibilities changes because of this phantomatic thing that is categorical imperative taking place. 
it introduces new or different kind of possibility that was not there prior to the imperative pinchicus, so to say. So, to return to Kant's example, so far the situation is perfect for him. He has proven the transcendental freedom. It doesn't matter whether the subject involved will or will not rather die than make false testimony. It is enough that he knows that he could. The problem is, however, that this, it does not matter whether he actually do, does it or not. It's not as equilibrated as it is intended to be. For so long as we don't do it, but are aware of the possibility of this deed, the proof stands for Kant. But the moment we do it, the moment this something else comes to exist empirically, say that I effectively choose to die rather than to make a false deposition against my fellow men, the moment this happens, all kinds of doubts come into play as to the purity of my motives. You know, this is the famous Kantian did I really do it only because of the duty? It was probably some other pathological motive at work and so on. So this explosion of dirt, so to say, the, the, that of possible pathological motives happens at the precise point when the, the gap opened and sustained by the imperative supposedly closes. And this is indeed quite striking in Kant. As long as uh, the ethical act remains pure yet clearly present possibility, he is satisfied with the proof of freedom it provides. But the moment it is realized empirically, freedom is lost, so to say. It cannot be uh, testified to, firmly testified to, pointed to. So, and now in what uh, remains of my talk, I would like simply to do two things. First, replace the term possibility, which I've used so far, with, I think, a more precise notion of the non-realized. And second, uh, redirect the immediate avalanche of criticism usually provoked at this point. Namely, you know that Kantian ethics is basically that of what Hegel called the beautiful soul. So that it does everything to discourage us actually from acting in this world, but encloses us into this obsessive circle of interrogating our motives and so on. Um, so, this is not to say that Kant didn't have a serious conceptual problem to which he perhaps failed to provide a fully satisfactory answer, but I think the problem is perhaps elsewhere and this kind of criticism uh, contributes rather something to conceal this other problem. So first, Yes, I think we could say that at the very core of practical reason, as law-giving and as conceptualized by Kant, lies a dimension of the non-realized. And I would say that this is a crucial, essential dimension, which in itself does not constitute the problem, but rather indicates its possible solution. Where Kant fails is, I think, in distinguishing between two kinds or, or two natures of this non-realized. One which would be simply something that did not happen or take place. That is to say, the, the other possibility compared to the one that took place, what happened. It's uh, non-realized as another possibility of many. 
And second, the other notion of the non-realized is the non-realized as the condition of what has taken place in the case of uh, moral conduct. So let me explain a little. The imperative do your duty, for instance, is what in a given concrete situation functions as a structure supporting something which is neither being or nor non-being. Something that does not have and cannot have an ontological status in this sense. And this paradoxical something, this phantom-like dimension of reality, only makes itself noticeable with the imperative and as imperative. In, in, in respect to this instance of freedom, absolute necessity that I was also uh, relating this point to before, we should, I think, first of all, abandon the vocabulary of realization. Uh, namely, with the imperative, freedom is as real as it gets. Perhaps we should put it this way. Freedom itself does not get any more real if we do act as we think we should. What happens in this last case, when we act as we think we should, is that freedom gets or should get inscribed into the empirical reality as its own non-realized. That is to say, it's not simply that the freedom gets realized here. It gets inscribed into the reality of as its own thing that made it possible. And this is precisely, I think it's quite obvious, the Kantian problem the problem that he is obsessed with in the critique of practical reason, that of proposing or formulating a structure that would capture it as non-realized, inscribed it in the empirical reality as the unrealized of what took place. And this would be precisely the distinguishing feature of one course of action as opposed to another. The point where we could say that this is the this was indeed the right thing to do. So what does this mean? To return to Kant's example, this would mean that in the case when I did what I was ordered to do by the sovereign, that is make a false testimony, the non-realized is not simply my refusing to make a false testimony. That is to say, the alternative reality that might have taken place but did not. Rather, it refers to the fact that there is an alternative and moreover, that the alternative is what is absolutely necessary. In other words, this phantom reality involved in the non-realized is the reality of the absolute necessity itself and not of alternative possibilities. An absolute necessity that pertains to some course of action and not to others. The way Kant attempts to capture this imposing, pressing, yet fleeting thing into some structure is by this following and very famous formula, not only in accordance with duty, but also only because of the duty. You know, this famous statement that for an ethical act to qualify as ethical, it is not enough that it complies with the law, that uh, one does what one thinks is one's duty. On top of it, one has to make sure that one only does it because of the duty, that there is no other reason behind it. 
So this is the kind of way of, I think, of trying to somehow uh, capture this in some sort of a structure. In other words, when I set out to realize, and the term is perhaps more appropriate here, whatever possibility, uh, this other possibility uh, that enters the set of possibilities by way of the imperative, this must not go down as simply yet another possibility for Kant. Then it's lost if it simply registers as such. It must not go down as something that was fully possible before, so that the imperative would merely direct me towards it. And as I said before, the situation is not, here are the possibilities, you give false testimony or you refuse, refuse to give it, and the imperative commands you to do the latter. The choice or alternative doesn't exist outside the, this imperative taking place, and this fact is what tends to be forgotten once I do what I believe to be my duty. So I think one could perhaps say that this only because of the duty is Kant's way of formulating how what I did when I did the right thing is supported precisely by this non-realized this dimension. It is a way of formulating how the possibility of what I did only materializes or becomes what it is with the, this imperative of reason. And of course, one could say that considering all the criticism that has befallen Kant at this point, it is probably a clumsy formulation of this. But nevertheless, I would read it as an attempt to formulate precisely this, this gap or this fault. So only because of the duty is another term for absolute necessity. It is nowhere to be seen. As such, it is indeed a very strange criterion of morality, which is why I think it shouldn't be taken as criterion in the first place, but rather as its formula, the writing of its paradoxical structure. Every time something practically important takes place, it is only so far as the non-realized makes place for its taking place. But this making place does not pre-exist it's taking place, the temporality is retroactive here. I would simply put it like this. It is because of our practice, our ethical practice, that we know of freedom, which in turn works as its condition, that is, as absolute necessity. But when, on the other hand, this only because of duty becomes a question mark and a criterion, did you really do it only because of your duty, it changes its conceptual place and turns into a figure of a superego all by itself. So if now, I will now conclude in a minute, if I just return to the moral law, this paradoxical law that doesn't tell me what to do, only do your duty, the law that operates without making itself known, what are the consequences that could be drawn from this? Perhaps we should first reverse the common uh, place perception according to which there is a necessarily vague, opaque, complex moral reality in which only the moral law provides some clear, firm structure or guidance. Rather, we must say that the moral law is what is the most phantom-like in this reality. It is there, and yet not really, not fully. It is kind of out of focus with the rest of reality. Which is why if we bring it into focus, the immediate reality tends to become marginal. 
And I would simply conclude with some kind of, uh, perhaps, two rhetorical suggestion that in this present uh, gloomy reality, anticipating the, the apocalypse and in the noise uh, of pressing emergency or necessity surrounding it, we as philosophers and as political subjects perhaps better stop and think about what is absolutely necessary. Thank you very much. These mics work? No? Uh, so I think um, the floor is now open. Um, I'm sure there are questions from both um, Mladandala and Alenka Tsopanchik. So. Testing. Thank you both very much. I wanted to uh, start things off by asking a question to both of you that is extremely polemical, and hopefully that will help generate some more uh, debate and discussion. I wonder what the legitimacy is of the philosophic claims that you advance. And that's my most general question. Where do you garner the legitimacy of the philosophic arguments that you put forward? It strikes me that there are at least two aspects of that legitimacy. One is that in both of the talks, there is a kind of philosophic ventriloquism that is performed in which in the first talk, uh, arguments were made through the dummy lens to a certain extent of Hegel. In the second talk, it was the dummy lens of, of Kant. And that lent a certain amount of legitimacy to the arguments themselves as they were advanced. A second level of legitimacy seems to be operative at the level of an implicit rhetorical uh, normativity that almost serves as a kind of guiding law of sorts to pick up on the vocabulary in the second talk. And that rhetorical normativity consists in valorizing constant dialectical inversions as a form of philosophical wherewithal. In other words, an attempt to legitimate claims by constantly inverting counterclaims. And so, in fact, as my third point in order to conclude this would be that uh, ultimately my concern would be if I would rely on the language game of dialectical inversions, that instead of you being the ventriloquists, malevolent ventriloquists at that, making Kant and Hegel speak against themselves, the risk is that you would ultimately be the dummies of Kant and Hegel, and that they are the ones who are malevolently speaking through you. And so, 
reframing the question in terms of the dialectical inversion that I myself am critical of, it would be how do you avoid being the dummies of Kant and Hegel, and where does the legitimacy of your philosophical argumentation come from? Um, I would be happy to be the dummy of um, Kant and Hegel, actually. <laughs> I, don't, I don't see this as an unhappy fate. Um, uh, unfortunately, I think it's rather an impossible fate. Um, one cannot simply be the dummy of um, um, this particular moment in, 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 the, in the grand uh, philosophical tradition because it's quite clear that that moment is gone. And the fact that we are living in um, this post-Hegelian times, um, reasserting the gesture that Kant and Hegel made at this at a certain point is, of course, a certain choice and a certain politics and a certain um, opening of a certain field or a certain criticism, taking a certain critical stance towards what happened largely, and particularly in the case of Hegel, as modernity as being post-Hegelian in the sense of uh, having Hegel as the background against which the last metaphysician, the last metaphysician against which one could be post-metaphysical and espouse all this set of notions that are in somewhat caricature manner sort of uh, laid out. So reasserting this uh, is, is actually taking a stance uh, um, against the development or in, in the field of a development which saw the, uh, the, the German idealism in Hegel in particular as the backdrop against which one could be modern, it is a, as a sort of uh, um, um, a kernel which we were supposed to surpass, but which in a way always survived as the, the, the undealt with, the non-realized, as it were, in some sense, of modernity itself. This would be a beginning of, a, of an answer to your question. Uh, but it, it took in other directions, sorry. I'm, yeah. yeah, I don't know. I don't have much to add to what Mladen said. I think it's uh, actually, I mean, the, the, the very question of um, legitimacy, I think it's, uh, I don't know if I... Um, understand the, the, the legitimacy of this question. So I don't know exactly what, uh, I mean, it is clearly a certain conceptual stance which is not, which has no, uh, so to say, um, justification or um, guarantee outside of what it makes and the results it could produce uh, in, the, in a conceptual space where it uh, where it moves and why the concept it develops. So uh, clearly what we said is the test of our legitimacy. So uh, it passes, one passes it or not. I don't think it is, uh, there could be a way of naming what makes it legitimate to me to, uh, for me to, to do this or not. I don't know if, or perhaps I misunderstood the name. 
the argument. <laughs> I, I, I don't want to monopolize the conversation, but it, it's an interesting and surprising response that you give because of your insistence on the absolute nature of the law. Right, and, and the response that you've just this given is... This is absolute precisely. I think you are trying to relativize it. I, this is, I absolutely stand behind this. I, I'm not right. saying that it... But then the law of your own philosophic discourse, you're willing to relativize, which to a certain extent, I wouldn't use that language, but I'd be willing to acknowledge exactly what you said, and that is that you've made a philosophic intervention based in part on a mobilization of philosophic figures from the past, as Mladen was saying, in order to displace a certain consensus that is operative, but the legitimacy itself is the result of an intervention in a situation. So there is no uh, absolute in the sense of some type of categorical philosophical imperative. I don't know, perhaps uh, the, the very notion of the absolute that I was trying to resuscitate here is precisely the one that springs from the absolute necessity of this situation, precisely in this sense. I don't see no, uh, any contradiction here. It was precisely against the kind of absolute grounding that comes from elsewhere, but from the concrete situation itself where it intervenes. So it's... Okay. Yeah. Sorry. I mean, maybe we're talking past one another, and hopefully others will be understanding how we are talking past one another and understand more things than you and I individually are, uh, which would be uh, which would be helpful. But it it did seem that you wanted to appeal to something that was uh, you said at the very beginning of your talk that it was important to be able to absolutely deny something. And I took that as understood, I understood that as absolutely denying that the imposition of austerity measures, for instance, in the current conjuncture, is something that's accessible, or that is acceptable. And so in that sense, there is an absolute affirmation. And my question had to do less with the political valence of your interventions than with their self-justificatory processes as philosophic discourses. Uh, yes, and I think there is precisely a point where to, one, uh, to which one comes, uh, especially while reading this text, which is that uh, however far the justification goes, it comes to a point when there is no justification for it anymore. So in this point, then we can decide to make it a kind of uh, completely other contingent or whatever else, or you, you can read it as the very point of reason, the very point where I think the, what, or also what, where, what is the human freedom or praxis begins from. So it's not simply, uh, I mean, it's, it's clearly a, a stance and a proposal, but it is not simply playing uh, reasons against no reasons at all. I'm not pleading for some kind of capriciousness and saying, okay, whatever, it doesn't matter. Of course, one goes to the end, so to say, in the chains of reason, they're always there, but there is also this structure that the very chain of reason presupposes in which uh, involves an inherent gap that finally there is no sufficient reason and what what one makes of this i think could have some political relevance it could also be related to very concrete situations not simply in this and to read it as a point of absolute that one cannot hide under the carpet or do without or uh, it's, it was my attempt to, this was what, what, what I tried to suggest.
Um, well, I hope I didn't cut anyone off. Um, first, thank you so much for your talks. Um, I'm not going to pretend to have already digested both and be able to make all the connections to both, but I wanted to bring up a more open-ended question for you both um, that maybe points to and brings in this concrete, these concrete possibilities for at least Mr. Ponchik's talk, but I think um, I wanted to raise in just the idea of global warming and have ask you both to speak to that, partly also to um, counter the idea of a sort of slow and yet already present apocalypse to Mr. Delar's, um, the you brought up the nuclear annihilation as fantasy. Um, and maybe partly if we could sort of bring in this, the slowness of the ever present, of already present global warming against the fantasy of a kind of um, apocalypse that maybe we reach for first when we think of apocalypse, the intensity of a very violent and instantaneous end. Um, whereas, of course, the, the kind of end that we're dealing with now brings, requires talks like this and actually gives us the time to have them. Um, so I'm sorry if that's a little open-ended, but I kind of wanted to bring in um, the, the actual end of the world into this conversation. <laughs> Alenka, would you like to start? Yeah, I don't know. Uh, The actual end of the world. I mean, uh, the the whole thing, even starting from I don't know, to, to some extent, uh, from what uh, what Agamben says in this his his take on it, and I think to some uh, to some extent I can agree with this that you, there are these two different kinds of uh, um, saying it or formulating it. One is that. Um, the end, the, the time of the end, and the other is the end of time. And uh, from what I understand from your question is simply, it's this first one, kind of, uh, now there is a time that will, some, something with, will happen that will do away with the, with the time, and this catastrophe. I don't know, I think we both tried to address precisely the, um, the difficulty of this kind of perspective. I think it is always, um, something that is inscribed, I mean, there are lots of problems, there are lots of really pressing political problems that are here right now, at this very moment, and including ecological problems and so on. And I don't think we necessarily need this kind of horizon of, or, or reference to this thing that will come and sweep us away, because it, this precisely introduces the stage for this kind of phantasmatic enjoyment in this order and playing with it. I know it is, in this sense, I think it is pressing, and I'm not saying that one should simply do nothing about it, but one should take it as a, one should take it away from this um, simply perspective of of uh, the apocalypse that waits at, at the end of something, and recognize the points where this apocalypse is already taking place and try, to, in some ways, uh, be conceptually as well to kind of yeah, uh, work against it or do something in the sense that um, changes the, 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 this setting or this configuration, or something like this. Um, do I have something important to say about global warming? <clears throat> um, I'm not sure. I mean, uh, apart from what is generally known and and uh, the sort of um, 
practical measures or ways of thinking to address the ecological problems as earnestly as possible, which, of course, I, I fully agree with and uh, partake in, in various ways. But um, this is not at odds uh, with what I was trying to say. And, and I think Alenka actually put it well. I mean, it's, it's a question of um, living in a period when one is constantly uh, th um, threatened with the end of times, that the time will come for, uh, to an end. He's also living in a period where this uh, argument of the end, and uh, Derrida addresses it in this uh, paper on the, on the nuclear war, which was um, at the time when it was written in the 80s, a very, a very real and imminent, imminent possibility. Um, I mean, there is a structure when one um, puts it in these terms, which uh, has the structure of a blackmail. Uh, unless you do X, the catastrophe will happen. And what, what we both try to do is to uh, somehow loosen or undo this structure and introduce other terms through which to address uh, the problems. And, and this, this is not in contradiction in that action should be taken, yes, that uh, there, there should be serious. Uh, uh, one should engage, and, and there are pressing problems in one should engage. It's the very framework in, in which uh, one is a sort of victim of a certain, um, of, a, of a constant, let's say, al alternatives which are, which are put in the, in, uh, in the framework of um, Blame, blackmailing into one kind of action or another and, and um, uh, um, sort of um, rushing into action, as it were. And um, I don't know, taking these um, references to, well, the imperative, the absolutely necessary, or taking the reference to the absolute as that which interrupts this kind of thinking, displaces the very frame of the question. Um, I'd like to also thank you both for traveling so far to be with us and for these uh, papers. Um, the point I, I found most striking in the paper that uh, in the two papers that both concluded uh, with some sort of affirmation of something absolute, which uh, cuts right today very deeply against what our norm our normal uh, frame of discourse is. I I, I think. Um, in fact, to think sort of historically in a Hegelian fashion about a notion like the absolute, yeah, it seems there was a time uh, uh, that that time's quite a long time ago. Um, um, not so long as dinosaurs, but no, 1840s or so, right? That, this, this idea was dismissed. Um, so uh, I'm curious. Uh, uh, whether this is provocatively anachronistic. Um, I'm curious whether you planned that convergence with both the papers ending in a similar fashion. And uh, uh, I guess since 
uh, it is a different time. Um, I'm curious what the shape of the absolute that we might think of today, uh, what shape, what color, what character does it have? Uh, maybe a big broad end question there as well. Well, of course it was provocative. Uh, and I'm, I'm glad that the provocation somehow worked. <laughs> that um, uh, you're puzzled by wh why would one bring up the absolute and uh, what kind of stance this is. And it's, um, it's true that uh, something like absolute knowledge, uh, which was Hegel's claim, um, I can see that uh, the claim to absolute, um, I mean, Hegel was a university professor by his stance, by his profession, but not, not merely by his profession, but the whole of his system could be somehow inscribed into his being, uh, in, in, into inhabiting the, um, the, the figure of a university professor. This is what he was. And he was a professor at the Humboldt University, which was the first modern university, etc. And at the beginning of what the modern university discourse is, this is Humboldt University um, inaugurated this. But at the same time, somebody who raises the claim to absolute knowledge cannot be part of a university discourse. I mean, university discourse only exists if one doesn't quite claim to rise to the point of absolute knowledge. Um, it's a sort of um, symptomatic point. I mean, Hegel being the first modern university professor, but it has to be, the, the very notion of absolute knowledge had to be erased in order for the university discourse to, to emerge. Uh, a discourse of um, relative claims to knowledge and um, competitive claims to knowledge uh, which can then be tested, uh, renovated, um, uh, whatever, within this university frame, which means precisely a sort of neutralization of knowledge. I mean, university discourse is precisely a neutralization of the, of the notion of knowledge that Hegel had in mind. And this happened to me before, I mean, in, in some places in American academia where I seriously tried to uh, defend the notion of absolute knowledge in Hegel, which seems really this antiquated, abstruse, uh, monstrous notion. Nobody can somebody in the right mind kind of raise this seriously this as, a, as a stance. And people look at me very puzzled. I mean, he seems kind of normal guy, but could it be that he's crazy um, to say this and um, I, th I think this is uh, both talks somehow aimed at rehabilitating certain things which um, are antiquated but at the point of uh, I mean we both uh, quite inadvertently we didn't, we didn't quite compare our papers or, or uh, plan this in advance we planned actually two papers on psychoanalysis uh, which, were, uh, which were more coordinated. The, these two are coordinated just by, um, I suppose, by the nature of things, because we worked together for such a long time. I mean, we did, there is no need for immediate coordination or whatever. But we both raised this question of the rift in being, as being, I mean, we both use this, this wording, of the rift in being 
as, be, as being the point of the absolute. And I think this is the, this would be the, um, first the, the particular Hegelian, I think, absolutely astounding and, and in, innovative or whatever, uh, take on the absolute, which differs from anything that went before under, under this word. And this, again, can be a certain, uh, this rift in being, to think this rift in being and to think the absolute in it or through it as the rift, as the, as the absolute, is something that actually conditioned the very advent of modernity and at the same time was obfuscated in it. So this, this is why this insistence on this particular point which I think was quite unique in the history of thought. And it's not about rehabilitating Hegel or defending Hegel, and this is, I think, a useless, I don't know, it's, it also cannot be defended. I mean, on so many, on so many points, I mean, I'm, not, um, I'm not, not interested in this, uh, making Hegel just simply as the hero to whom we must return, but if I use this coincidental overlapping of the rift in being as, as a cue, this is the point one should hold on to. This is a point that one should hold on to precisely under the name of absolute. Yeah, I don't know. I would perhaps simply add to this in, um, something related to Kant. I think that, first of all, I have the impression that it's not so, I mean, that the questions that are, the set of questions that relates to the question of the absolute in German um, idealism is far from not being around in, at this point. I think in philosophy, in different ways, it's very much present. It's very often, I mostly doesn't use this name and the question that do not directly refer to uh, to this, but I think that if one takes time to uh, look precisely at the configuration that this absolute implies, one could recognize, as a matter of fact, uh, different debates, um, uh, including the, the debate about speculative realism that I have mentioned, which are very much present, but apart from these many others. But I would say, for instance, in Kant, if you take Kant, which is a slightly different case than Hegel, um, you have this kind of symptomatic appropriation of Kant in all kinds of uh, very contemporary ways of philosophy that absolutely refuse to have anything to do with the absolute and who praise Kant, Kant precisely for his finally uh, reading us of this notion for his um, kind of uh, um, insist on human finitude and the whole, then the whole ethics of uh, of the other, the ethics of uh, also human rights, which is a liberal way of reading Kant, or all the, this kind of a, let's say legal way of reading it. So you have a Kant, which I think it's to a certain extent um, a symptomatic Kant because it is a Kant without a certain point in Kant which I think it's nevertheless crucial and which constitutes for me the most vivid point of his thinking, the, the point that kind of really driven him forward and why for me Kant is Kant. And I think this is precisely this point of the categorical. Okay, it's perhaps better word, it's absolute categorical and the, what it conceals and reveals at the same time. So I, I absolutely think that 
uh, in this, if I return to the first question, if one is to keep some kind of uh, fidelity to this kind of thinkers, and I, I think one should, it is precisely in an attempt to not uh, join in this kind of sweeping under the carpet, the, the point that seems to be the most, um, I don't know, um, controversial or uh, not any of no relevance anymore at this precise uh, time. And I, I really think that there is something about Kant that remains interesting and that it is precisely this other kind of Kant, not simply uh, the Kant of uh, whatever this, uh, this very well acceptable everywhere. I'm wondering if perhaps another name for the form of the imperative, the rift in being, the absolute, if you might say another name for that is truth. And I'm already kind of jumping the gun and thinking of the I truth and speaking of the Freudian Verneinung. And if that's the case, if you would name that rift truth, then how do you respond to Badiou, for whom a truth is actually the chance for the identity of being and thinking to not end in shipwreck. It's precisely a chance to, to not end in catastrophe. It's not a, a truth is the support for perhaps a non-split subject, ontological subject. So I'm just kind of asking about the maybe asymmetry, the, the opposition between what you might call a truth and perhaps what Badu is calling a truth. So I think uh, there are both, uh, as you put it, uh, there are both some resemblances and some sort of dissymmetry at, uh, at stake here. Uh, uh, one could say, yeah, one could, I think one way of uh, naming this would be truth. Although I think it's uh, the way the whole um, edifice, conceptual edifice is, con is constructed um, in Badiou in relationship to this is to say that uh, subjectivity is a kind of response to this truth precisely. So it is the, uh, it, I don't know, I think we, we both kind of more situated the very subjectivity at the point of this rift and not situated as something that um, kind of comes into being uh, in a strong sense of the word as responding to this particular rift, which could be a way of putting it as well. But somehow I think at least, I mean, in, in Hegel it is quite, obvious that the subjectivity is this internal um, rift that keeps it moving. Uh, and so perhaps, yeah, one could speak about uh, subjectivity itself as emerging on, on two different levels. I mean, the, 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 this would be a kind of subjectivity before subjectivity to which a subject emerges in these four uh, figures of uh, fidelity, whatever that, uh, that Badiou points out. So it is, um, but there was another uh, question in this question. Uh, no. <laughs> no, I think it's, there are, I think there are many similarities, but there is also this kind of perhaps, uh, at least in uh, the logique des modes, um, the way how uh, to some extent, at least, uh, uh, but you kind of um, 
uses a lot or keeps with, I mean, tries to formulate this via the whole notion of the transcendentals, which I think it's slightly different way of formulating the relationship, the subject to the absolute from the one that we were kind of um, doing here. But I don't know, perhaps you, if you have some... All right, uh, I would say that um, <clears throat> there is something in Badiou which can be definitely mapped or connected or, or being correspondent with what, what we are saying. If you take the very title, being an event, then you can see that the event is the rift of being. I mean, the event is precisely something that is not. We're inhabiting being, inhabiting situation, um, well, what he calls uh, l'état de la situation. Uh, so something that cannot be objectively proven or objectively there as, uh, as a given. And the only way it can be proven or sustained is by subjective fidelity to it. And subject is nothing but the fidelity to this something which uh, has no clear, or no, no ontological, no objective ontological status, as it were. And this is one way of um, for, formulating this. It is, it is one way of looking at things. But uh, I think when Hegel says uh, substance is subject, it's, it's a simpler and uh, a more pervasive claim. And you know that um, Hegel only, um, I mean, this is the, the sentence with, on which he pinned his fortune. I mean, Hegel uh, speaks on several, in, in various ways, I mean, against uh, the truth being spoken out in a sentence. There cannot be a truth in a sentence. Because uh, um, it, it's only in the movement of the way that uh, various philosophical positions, various theories are in a process, in a connection, in, in, a, in a development, in a deployment, that the truth lies. It cannot reside in a, single, in a single statement, which would be true or not. So this is his general view of truth. But he nevertheless, I mean, paradoxically, in uh, the preface of phenomenology, said everything depends on understanding that uh, substance is subject. And um, um, so he pinned his fortune on, on one very simple sentence. And um, I, I would say that, um, that there is a profound criticism of the very notion of substantiality, which is there, uh, by saying substance is subject. The sub I mean, sub uh, the subject is the name for the substance never being able to be what it is, for the substance itself being indifference to itself. In, in, because the substance was the, the I mean, the, the, the master word of philosophy. Let's try, let's try to figure out what is the substance behind the fleetingness of, of phenomena. Um, in whatever way the, one can um, construe this question, but the substance was actually precisely something that to, to counteract the temporal change or the, the uncertainty 
of the phenomenal world. And by introducing this figure of the subject into the substance, the figures which may be uh, opposed in the modernity, opposed in the modernity, although the, 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 the very word subject comes from, uh, could be a, a, a word that uh, translated the, the, the Aristotelian Hippocamenon. So the, the, the two figures which are opposed in modernity to inscribe uh, substance, uh, subject into the substance as the inner disparity of the substance with itself. I think this is the simplest, the simplest move the simplest move where one can, which displaces, utterly displaces the very notion of substance and the notion of the subject, if you, if you think those two things together. And, but you makes a, a different kind of move, which is the move of fidelity, uh, which is indeed a non-split subject, if it's the subject of fidelity, a subject which stands behind a certain it's, it's a subjectivity, this is what he calls the subject, the subject in an entirely different manner or on a different level. It's the subject that uh, one has to identify with or can, a subject position that one in, consciously inhabits as the fidelity to this. In Hegel, the subject can never be this. It, it just, uh, it's just the disparity which conditions whatever, thinking, substance. Um, it is past 4.30, so let's maybe take one more question and conclude this session. Um, I, I, well, I apologize to you ahead of time. My, my nerves have the best of my composure. But um, my question is for you, Professor Delar, and thank you to both of you for, for coming to speak to us today. Um, you mentioned in your talk um, that you were going to take a hardline stance against some of the criticisms that have been leveled against Hegel. Um, and I was struck then by later in your talk that you said that you wanted to oppose, in some ways, the attempt to open the closure of metaphysics with opening that opening. And um, in that way, you, you reflect, I think, and in a very admirable way, um, the Brecht's remark that Hegel is the great comedian who can say two things at once. Um, and that you are able to hold both, it seems, a respect for the opening and a, a, a very firm grasp of the, of the closure. Um, and I suppose my question to you is, I, it, it come, it, I am struck sometimes that we as students live in almost a post-apocalyptic time and that we have to wrestle with the wake of very damning criticism by Heidegger, by Levinas, by Derrida, and also a tradition that um, we are entrenched in. And I wanted to just ask you about uh, what you see the road ahead as uh, even opening the opening. Thank you. No, well, my, my intention was um, actually very simple. I didn't quite uh, go to the length. Uh, um, I did my PhD in Hegel many years, decades ago, actually. Um, and um, going through a lot of relations in Hegel, one is somehow nauseated by the question of closure, which comes up uh, again and again um, as, the major, as the major sin ascribed to Hegel, the metaphysical closure. 
Um, it all ends with, with uh, absolute knowledge. It's all teleologically the end meets uh, the beginning in a, in a circle or whatever. And um, as opposed to this, I mean, this is the doxa I was speaking against. Uh, we should open up. Uh, the open is good. I mean, this being closed is terrible. Um, and all I was trying to do is to say that if we conceive of Hegel in these ways, we will never learn anything about Hegel. I think it's not in the opposition between the closed and the open that uh, one can conceive the particular figure of thought that Hegel is, is after. It, it's, not a sufficient, it's not a sufficient opposition. And uh, of course then, uh, that, uh, one can see that many proponents of the, of the open well, uh, the, the more they are the proponents of the open, uh, it often seems the more close-minded they are, the, the more close-minded they are. I mean, the, the, this, uh, this maybe goes together. The more one speaks about the open, there is a certain uh, limit or closure in this uh, speech of openness. This podcast is brought to you by Villanova University on iTunes U please visit us on itunes.villanova.edu.